Hello everyone, I'm Joseph Long, and this is episode 8 of This is the Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Good morning, world. It's a Thursday morning. I'm sitting on top of a mountain with my third cup of coffee for the morning. And thank you to those of you who have been wondering why it's been so long since the last episode, almost three weeks. Well, I have a really good answer for that, but I'm not going to give it right now because if I do, that would turn this episode into a third consecutive different sort of episode. And this is going to be a completely normal episode. So I'm not going to tell you about the many exciting adventures that I've been on, um, and including one wonderful bout of television watching spread out over a couple of weeks in which uh, my wife, the Countess Beck, and I made it through Hulu's Normal People, which is one of the most wonderful television adaptations of a book that I've seen in a very long time. Simply beautiful. But I'm not going to talk about normal people, and I'm not going to talk about the many things that have happened since last episode. I'm not going to talk about those things at all, uh, uh, until the very end. I might talk about just a teeny tiny bit then. What I am going to do, first off, is I'm going to tell you a story. And it's not an entirely true story. Well, truth be told, a year or so ago, I started repurposing, reimagining classic stories, fairy tales, folk tales, etc., for the children. This is one of those. This one is called Tom Thumb. It's originally from England, and I think I'd like to think there's some some value in learning some of these old tales. Again, this is my version. Tom Thumb. Once upon a time, there was a great king named Arthur. He is one of the greatest of the great English heroes, and legend says that he was very good at pulling swords out of stones and not so good at communicating effectively with his wife Guinevere and good friend Sir Lancelot. But this story is not about them. This story is about Thomas, and it may contain a great amount of violence that could potentially not be appropriate for those over the age of 100. A man, not Thomas, lived in the country in the 5th century, that is to say, during Arthurian times when the Saxons were trying to invade, and long before the 17th century's arrival of the Enlightenment, which has no relevance to this story but is important to know about nonetheless. This man, Phil, lived with his wife Maud, and they were not happy. Their cottage was cozy, their bellies were full of rich food and fine drink, but they were not happy. They had no baby. Some people get unhappy after they have a baby, because sometimes babies are horrible and refuse to do their chores or treat people nice. But they didn't have a bad baby, they simply had no baby. Maud went off to work every day at the mill. Phil stayed home and did a few chores and then wept. He was very sad about not having a child and got bored easily, as he did little else besides chores, crying, and having his wife play with his hair on long summer evenings. Upon a certain non-summer day, in which Maud was working a double shift, a fairy was flying by and chanced upon the weeping man. She was a kind-hearted fairy, as fairies in that particular part of Britain often were at that time, and she was also a queen, and she, for some particular reason, knew that Phil and Maud were good folk, and that they would make good parents, and she took pity as she listened to Phil crying. I just want kids, maybe three or four, but I'd be happy with even one, just one. And he doesn't even have to be big. He could be a little guy, even if he were no bigger than my thumb. Now, Phil had plenty of time to think and weep, and so he was sort of just saying these things out loud. But the fairy processed this idea and decided to grant this wish. A lot of stories and films spend loads of rubbish time on necessary details, and we won't do that here. So skipping ahead a few hours, what we have is Maud walking through the front door after a long day of work, and what does she find? Phil. 
She finds Phil, who is leaning against their kitchen table with a wry smile on his face. A wry smile of total contentment and happiness. What's going on, honey? She says as she steps through the threshold. The threshold being something that ordinary folks do literally and heroes do figuratively. No! He screams as her foot is poised in the air. Look out! She is so surprised that she lurches forward and falls, twisting her hip terribly and hitting her left leg so hard that a small hairline fracture opens up on her tibia, a fact she is not aware of until later, at which point she ends up missing a great deal of work, which is not paid time off. Phil rushes forward to help and rushes right past her towards something on the ground right inside the threshold. It's a nut, a walnut. He picks it up carefully and cradles it. What is going on, Phil? She winces as she assesses her body's damage. I wanted to surprise you, he grins. No big deal, except we have a kid now. I thought we could name him either Pupa or Thomas. Do you have a preference? So excited, she forgets her pain and gets up and then immediately collapses because it turns... She sprained her right ankle moments before. Tears of painful joy and joyful pain engulf her face and drip their way onto the stone floor. I'm... I'm so happy, she murmurs before fainting, partially from happiness, but mostly from blood loss, which is what happens when a femoral artery is severed, which was another side effect of the spill she took. Phil, at that point, faints as well, partially from happiness and mostly from the smell of blood, which he does not handle well. We'll skip ahead a bit more because there is some recovery involved, and obviously, considering the state of medicine during the Middle Ages, the chances of Maud recovering from her injuries is scant. But she does recover well enough to have a party. They invite their friends to meet their son, whom they have named Thomas. Thomas Thumb, because he's the size of a human thumb. Thomas, because his dad's middle name is Theophilus, which also starts with a T. Thomas grew up to be quite a big boy, but of course he was still very small and mischievous. Oh, was he mischievous. His mom loved to bake after work, and you might be wondering if his dad loved to bake. And the answer is we don't know. The history books don't mention his dad baking. So once upon a day, Maud is baking and making plum pudding, and Thomas being the mischievous lad he is, he's climbing around and falls in. He gets all mixed up in it, and through an interesting chain of events, manages to not suffocate, get eaten, or get crushed. He does, however, end up in the hands of a tinker, which is someone in olden times who tried to make money fixing things. And the tinker is walking home with this delicious plum pudding, and Thomas somehow pops up loose out of the pudding and scares the tinker a quarter to death. The tinker, Alfred, drops him in a field with fright, and that's the end of that episode. Thomas finds his way home, and it's a great example of an anticlimactic ending to an episode in a story. Except, the tinker has no dessert for his poor children, something he had been promising them all month. Two of his children were so disappointed and angry with their father that they don't speak to him for a decade. But aside from that, everything turned out all right for everyone. Very soon again, Thomas was in trouble, and this time it was a cow. Skipping through the boring parts, we'll just get straight to the point where Tom gets swallowed up. Actually, that part is not that interesting either. At least not any more interesting than the times he was almost impaled by a violent cat or almost drowned in a bucket of milk or almost crushed by a furious rooster. Anyway, he's swallowed by a cow, but he gets out. Nothing too exciting. He's a very difficult child to take out and about. Once upon a day, after these ones, though, his luck runs out. He's in the fields with Pop, and an eagle flies along, snatches him up, and takes Thomas in. His Historians believe it was a he, but this has been a subject of great debate. His beak. 
and eventually dumps him in a giant giant's castle. A giant giant's castle. That's an extra big giant. Coincidentally, the giant is walking along the ramparts and picks up what he thinks is a baby bird, which are one of his favorite snacks. This also leads us to question the relationship between the eagle and the giant. Why would the eagle be bringing a baby bird for the giant to eat? Did they have a quid pro quo sort of relationship where they each did some sort of favor for the other? What was in it for the eagle? We don't know, but I'm not afraid to conjecture. That's for another time, though. Sadly, the giant does eat Thomas. Or rather, the giant, his name was Cory, stuffed Thomas into his mouth as he was not averse to eating small children, although he had never done so before. But this is where Tom's pluckiness paid off. He fought, scratched, kicked, gagged, and pooped until the giant spit him out. Apparently doing so before taking a chomp, which could have ended the whole struggle then and there. As an aside, it is important to chew your food thoroughly, a well-known fact that the giant should have learned from his parents, which leads me to believe that he may have had an unsatisfying childhood in which he was not taught some of those basic things, which leads me to possess a certain degree of sympathy for Cory, the giant giant. But because Thomas is our protagonist, we are glad he has leaped out and survived. Cory picks him up, and apparently impressed by the boy's pluck, gently hurls him into the sea. What does Cory think will happen? Who knows? Anyway, Thomas ends up getting swallowed by a fish by the name of Burton. Now, Burton has his whole life story, which is fascinating in and of itself, and involves a wonderful romance off the coast of what is now Sri Lanka. But this is not his story, and if it was, this is where his story ends. Short version is that he's caught by a fisherwoman, caught as in killed for food. Burton is such a beautiful fish, even in death, that she is compelled to present it, him, Burton, as a gift to her king, that king being King Arthur. Yes, the King Arthur. The King Arthur. Arthur says thanks. What a beautiful fish. Let's eat it for supper and sends it off to be cooked. But it, back in the kitchen, and it gets super exciting here, the cook is cutting open poor Burton, who, unfortunate, who fortunately is dead at this point, and out pops Thomas. This is a surprising happenstance, to the degree that the cook shrieks in fright, trips backwards, and accidentally drops the knife on his foot, severing the middle toe, the middle toe of his right foot. This is the second time in Thomas's life that something like this has happened after he startled someone. The cook is crying and screaming, which is understandable, and everyone starts showing up, including King Arthur, who hasn't been to the kitchen for three years. And imagine they're surprised to find nine-toed cook screaming and the littlest man they've ever seen. Thomas has dirt and blood all over, so he asks for some water to bathe in, a concept that was almost but not completely foreign at this point in the 5th century. After everyone is cleaned up, except for King Arthur, who loathed a bathe of any sort, a feast is held and Thomas is the guest of honor. Everyone falls in love with the little fellow and his lively sense of physical humor and adroit, although not always appropriate, wit. Eventually, Thomas became a great favorite of King Arthur's court, although Gawain was never a big fan, and he did much good throughout his life, and he was good to his parents, for the most part. Phil, his dad, lived to the ripe old age of 32 and eventually died in his sleep from natural causes. The natural cause being that Thomas went for a surprise visit to see his parents and woke them both up at midnight, knowing they would be overjoyed to see him. They would have been, but they were so surprised that Phil, that Phil fell backwards off his side of the bed where he had unfortunately placed Excalibur, King Arthur's sword that he had graciously loaned Phil for the week to admire and play with. Short version is, don't sleep with swords facing the wrong way by your bed. 
Maud was so surprised that she slipped out on the other side and was fine, except for dislocating her other hip, the one that was still working fine. And she survived, but she was never able to walk again. But for everyone else, there were happy endings, and several of them lived into the golden years of their early 40s. True-ish story. The end. This next piece is something that I wrote about eight years ago, and I've already gotten in trouble with my family today for accidentally playing Christmas music. Seriously, it was an accident. Uh, This one is not about Christmas, don't worry, but it is about Thanksgiving. Well, I reference Thanksgiving. It's not really about Thanksgiving, and I do talk about Radiohead. It's called Mr. Kubrick and the Inaccessibility of Green Olives Amidst the Coming Ice Age. Every Thanksgiving, my sister Leanna and I eat one green olive. One. We both detest them. Just the green ones. It has become a ritual. We each try one. There is a point in the future at which I will like green olives. I am slowly approaching that actuality. Every year, they become a little less loathsome, marginally more palatable. I hesitate to say this out of loyalty to her, but this year might be the first that I have detected a semblance of my taste buds evolving and perhaps experiencing a fleeting sensation of pleasure. Kid A, Radiohead's 2000 cannonball of an entrance into electronic music, has been a longtime puzzle for me. I am a dedicated fan of other albums, preceding Magnum Opus OK Computer, as well as The Benz and Hail to the Thief. Kid A, is a relentless swirl of alien bucket drumming and sterile droning, an android's heartless dystopia that toys with end-of-world angst and may or may not have some type of linear narrative about approaching apocalypse. Also, melody exists, but as residue rather than beating heart. It feels like they tried to lobotomize melody for most of the tracks, keeping enough to still call them songs. At one extreme, you have Top 40 Radio that gives you what you know you like. I don't need to decide. I like peanut butter cookies. There's no need to think about it. My taste preferences are programmed to enjoy peanut butter cookies. Some are better than others. Peanut butter cookies are not created equally. Yet, if you give me a peanut butter cookie, chances are that you're going to have to screw it up pretty badly for me not to like it. Pre-made recipe for success. The other extreme is where you have bands like Radiohead making albums like Kid A, or continuing the food analogy, raw enchiladas with no cooked ingredients. As soon as I make this statement, there will be a heated minority who will rise up in a front and have a thousand examples of music that is truly inaccessible, that is really challenging to learn. That has been the critiques of all manner of music through the years, from Dave Brubeck's academic jazz to John Cage's experimental compositions to many other examples of musicians challenging people's expectations. I think music is perhaps the truest art form in its ability to ability to transcend symbolism. Although it can be analyzed and dissected, it is also pure in terms of not needing interpretation. It can be interpreted, but it doesn't require the audience to do so. It can simply be experienced at a sensory, emotional level. I suppose one of the questions is, how much do you work at trying to like something? You start reading a book. How long do you wait to be sucked in? If you're reading a James Patterson thriller, then you expect to be grabbed in the first chapter, if not the first page and a half. If he's not holding your attention early on, you're going to drop it. If you're reading, say, William Faulkner, then 
you're probably not really reading for enjoyment of narrative to begin with. You're not expecting to race through The Sound and the Fury. Good chance you're reading it out of obligation, not desire. Often you got to work at reading literature, for example, versus reading a hard-boiled detective thriller. Um, as a quick tangent, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle successfully merged the two with his masterful tales of Sherlock Holmes. But back to books. I used to start a book and finish it always. I needed to know not only how it was going to end, but to ensure that there wasn't something I was missing out on. I felt I owed it to myself to try and understand it. There are all kinds of analogies. Even as a teacher, there's a finite amount of energy, attention, and time to give. You have to prioritize how you use your time. There's no equitable sharing of it. Some students will simply make themselves more accessible and easier to communicate with and take a small portion of your resources. Others will be more challenging to work with, to understand and assist, who will require more dedicated time and attention. In the meantime, you have a chunk in the middle who are learning at a normal pace, if there is such a thing. So, I don't really have a great answer as to how much effort to, to devote to less accessible events or people or art or music or food. How much time do you spend trying to understand something before saying, I put everything into this and it isn't worth it anymore? For example, I'm going to give it my best shot up to this point, and then I'm going to quit. There is certainly a time to quit. Sometimes simply persevering may seem like a heroic thing to do, but sometimes quitting can also be just as noble an endeavor. Quitting is like the ultimate version of changing your mind, and I'm certainly a fan of changing your mind, as opposed to bullheadedly pursuing a path which you realize is wrong or not ideal, yet you continue on it just for the sake of completing a linear experience, for the purpose of saying, I'm not a quitter. I'm not afraid to say that I've quit things. So how do you decide when to quit, when to stop trying to like something you don't like right away? Why should I spend any more time listening to Kid A when I don't get it? Now, I am not strictly trained as a scientist per se. I do not have a PhD in a scientific discipline or, technically speaking, in any discipline. I'm hoping for an honorary doctorate at some point, the kind you get without going through any rigorous academic research. That being said, I believe in the role of environment and nurture, in people's ability to change and to evolve their thought processes, their habits, their patterns. I believe in people's ability to change. I believe in people's ability to change not just at a behavioral level, but at a neurological level, that our brains can reprogram and create something new. This portion I am yanking from the excellent Jonas Lehrer book, Proust was a Neuroscientist. The idea that when we hear music that's not in the same tonal scale we're used to hearing, or when we hear a piece resolved in a way that our minds have not anticipated, then we find it jarring and uncomfortable. But yet, when you repeatedly experience something, whether it's music or art or food or a person, and you become familiar with those patterns, then you begin to appreciate in a way that previously might have seemed challenging or impossible. I suppose Kid A has been that process for me. Intermittently, I play it, and I realize over the last 12 years that, track by track, I am becoming a fan of the album. And in particular, there is a song called Idiotech that has this glitchy, blurble drone of a melody finding its way out from binary code. This strange, pre-apocalyptic musical language that, a dozen years on, has started to sound comfortable, yet oddly futuristic. Futuristic in a Kubrick way, in an historical quality that is both timeless of the distant past and timeless of the distant future. This song, Idiotech, has a suspense that I finally start that I finally feel starting to pay off. I don't know if the Radiohead boys created it with the idea that people were meant to enjoy it. I'm not sure how they envisioned people experiencing it, or if they even realized at the time that they were creating the greatest song ever. 
at the time. I think a lot of people, a lot of critics, jumped on board to hail it as a masterpiece, even when they didn't understand it. That's often what happens when you have something that's new and different. It polarizes people. You have many people who don't understand and want nothing to do with it. You have other people who may not understand it any more than the others, but they respect it and cheerlead, not in, not in spite of not understanding, but because they don't understand it. I find myself in both places. There's books I don't finish, films I don't complete, music I walk away from. I'm not leaving my mind open to any and all. There's people I might have one good conversation with, and that's the extent of the time I'm willing to invest with them. For example, there's only so much time in my life for conversations with white supremacists and with aggressive techies trying to aggressively talk me into using Windows-based computers. No connection between the two groups, of course. My priorities with people will likely always have a nucleus, but spreading out from that nucleus will be a sense of adventure and openness to inaccessibility. I want to find time to create time to plan holes in my schedule and my life to letting the inaccessible become a new pattern to having the patience to let fresh grooves get worn into my record. I also know, in the spirit of prioritization, that I will spend plenty of time with things that I am already comfortable with. I'll never lose my love of the Beatles or Nina Simone, of Amelie or Dumb and Dumber, and the comfortable elements around me. They bring joy because of their familiarity, that balance between strangers and family. The bulk of my time I will spend with the people I love the most, the experiences I love the most, but I will also create time for those things that don't make sense right away. Like a kid, I will try to experience life with eyes wide open. Green olives, I will love you. Someday. Soon. I don't know how this happened. We're going to talk a little bit about science, but I've got an apology to make first. Somehow, I skipped over the moon. A couple episodes back, I said we were going to talk about the moon after the Earth, and I didn't. I skipped straight to stars and all that stuff. So we're just going to take a quick jump back to the moon. Thank you for those of you that have called me out on that for saying I would do something and then not doing it. Thanks for not letting me off the hook. So we're just going to talk about the moon real briefly. What is a moon? A moon is any object that revolves around a planet. We often think of satellites as human-made objects in space, but the moon is a great example of a natural satellite that keeps orbiting because of the strength of Earth's gravity. Of course, there's the little man's little house on the moon, the one that you can vaguely make out on a clear night. There's also different kinds of surfaces that are sometimes similar to Earth. Mountains, craters, big regions of hard, smooth lava from volcanic eruptions. The mountain areas are called the lunar highlands. The smooth lava areas are called Maria. I love the titles for those mountain areas, those smooth lava areas, lunar highlands and Maria. Beautifully named. The Earth is always moving, which means that Moon is always moving too. Every 27.3 days, it completes a revolution around Earth. This is where the Moon gets really cool. Are you ready? Every 27.3 days, the Moon makes a complete rotation. To summarize, the Moon completes both a revolution and a rotation every 27.3 days. It revolves and rotates at the same speed, which means we see the same face of the moon constantly. Okay, you gotta admit, that's cool. The moon reflects sunlight, which is why it has that beautific and calming glow. Remember how we talked about the different hemispheres on Earth are always in different seasons? Same kind of deal with the moon. The moon is, the sun is always lighting half of the moon. 
But because the moon and the earth are constantly moving, it's a different part that we see lit every night. These changes are called moon phases. They are dependent on the relative positions of earth, sun, and moon. When the moon is getting larger each night, it's called waxing. When it's getting smaller every night, it's called waning. There are eight phases. Look them up on Google. It's called the lunar cycle, and it takes 29 and a half days to complete a cycle through all eight phases. A solar eclipse occurs when the moon is between the earth and the sun. The moon blocks light from the sun, from the sun not the soon, the sun, and casts a shadow on earth, either a full or a partial shadow. That's a solar eclipse. A lunar eclipse occurs when Earth is between the Sun and the Moon. When this happens, Earth throws its shadow on the Moon. Some light still refracts through the Earth's atmosphere, which makes the Moon glow red. Cool. Oh, and there are three types, total, partial, and penumbral. Eclipses are pretty awesome, and a good reminder to pay attention because they don't happen frequently. We can predict when they'll happen, though, so heads up. The Earth's gravity pulls on the Moon, which is what keeps it in orbit. But guess what? The Moon's gravity also pulls on Earth. This is what causes tides. When I first heard this as a kid, it seemed crazy. Some sci-fi trick that an adult was trying to convince me was reality. But no, true thing. Tides are the recurring rise and fall of the ocean's water levels. The sides of Earth that are closest to the Moon are directly opposite the side facing the Moon experience high tides. In other words, the water is being pulled toward the moon. This high tide point moves across Earth as it rotates. There are two high tides and two low tides every day as it rotates around. So the time between a high tide and the next low tide is approximately six hours. When the, when the Earth, Moon, and Sun are all lined up, the gravity of the Moon and Sun increases, which means we get, remember gravity's effects, effect on tides? Yep. More gravity means that high tides are higher and low tides are lower. We call these spring tides. Everything's magnified. When the Sun and Moon are 90 degree angles to each other relative to Earth, the gravitational force is less and we get what's called neap tides. High tides are high, but not as high. Low tides are low but not as low. Less variance. Quick overview of the moon. Next episode, we're going to be leaping into galaxies again. My not deepest apologies, but sort of shallow to middle-ish apologies for skipping over that before. See you next time. My wife and I frequently have the children draw pictures of various stories while we're reading or telling them. The biblical book of Genesis has been an especially interesting one as we have given a great degree of creative license in rendering their own interpretations. Our daughter has drawn some lovely imaginings, and our son, who was almost four at the time, has also drawn some intriguing renditions. His collection of Genesis artwork and accompanying stories is one that I could potentially see being appealing to, appealing to Billy Graham, Richard Dawkins, and everyone in between, or at least being a catalyst for some chuckles, which is good exercise for the belly and cerebral cortex. David James Duncan has pointed out that God not only plays, but laughs, so I would guess that might happen, but I can't be certain. Perhaps I will post or share some illustrations eventually, but... For now, his first reimagining is this. The, bibli the biblical account of this story goes as such. Sadly, 
Jealous Cain kills his brother Abel, infamously becoming the world's first murderer. Our son's account of the same story goes like this. Abel starts fighting Cain and pushes Cain into the river, and then a crocodile bites Cain's head off. The tiniest bit of poetic license. Just wait for Noah, Abraham, and Deborah. Some of you may have been thinking to yourself, wow, Joseph has really steered clear of politics this episode, and I'm going to continue that, absolutely. We're just going to, for our last little bit, we're going to talk about a little bit of history. This is called Black Death, Storm Before the Calm. Okay, I was looking for a catchy headline, Storm Before the Calm. The bubonic plague, in this case, is the storm. The calm would be the Renaissance coming up 100-ish years later. It wasn't exactly calm. The idea is that something unfathomably tragic occurred, followed shortly thereafter in the larger scope of history by something magnificent. It's almost like the Middle Ages needed one last shot of awful to stick on humanity before plunging back into the light again. So what was the Black Death? The Black Death, also known as the Bubonic Plague, was an infection carried around by black rats and fleas. No Florence Nightingales or Edward Jenners around to nudge civilization in the right directions of hand-washing and disease transmission protocols. Anyway, it swept across Europe and Asia and North Africa. Nobody could stop it. Millions dead. By millions, I mean tens of millions. By tens of millions, I mean hundreds of millions. According to Wikipedia, somewhere between 75 to 200 million people died from it. Some estimates of have it killing 50% of Europe's population. Of course, this is in the 1300s. Starvation, disease, famine, and the cultural destruction that comes from the collapse of lives and civilization on that scale. Devastation. It took a couple hundred years for Europe's population to return to what it was. Why and how did it go away? Don't know exactly. The prevailing theory is through the use of quarantines, which helped to prevent its spread by keeping people in their homes and only out when necessary. One of the most horrific tragedies ever, and the worst pandemic in human history. We hope. Going to wrap up this episode, remind you to wear your masks when you're out. Yes, they do help. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Appreciate you being here. As always, look forward to next time.